Well, everybody, today I want to journey along with you through Acts chapter 27, where the Apostle Luke provides this amazing accounting of the journey of the Apostle Paul from Caesarea, where, of course, we've seen he's been imprisoned for the last two years, all the way to Rome, where the Lord Jesus Christ had told him he must go in order to bear witness to Christ and to the resurrection. And we're going we're gonna to take this all in together here in chapter 27, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 10 of chapter 28. We're going to take it all in one big gulp again as Luke records this journey of the Apostle Paul by way of by way of seafaring, by way of the ocean, by way of boat, and he records it in very exacting and very vivid detail for us here. I hope that you are able to read through this passage in preparation for our time together in it today. It's really well written, isn't it? And amazingly detailed, and it's an exciting, it's a, it's a compelling read. And throughout these verses, all of the unfailing faithfulness of God and the also we'll see the unflappable faith of Paul are the things that stand out most vividly and provide for us this really great portrait of what it looks like to walk by faith, even in the mid, even in the midst of all of the, the stormy trials and tribulations of life in this world. So as we come into this narrative together today, let me just say a few things to you by way of introducing it. Uh, Many scholars who have studied Acts chapter 27 have commented on the detail of Luke's writing here, on the precision that is included in his telling of this tale, and and especially the accuracy of what Luke chronicles here as, as people have studied this text and then gone by comparison and studied the known realities of the ancient world, the geography, the oceanography, the climatology even of that part of the world where this voyage of Paul took place in, what these scholars have all concluded is that Luke is precisely accurate in his accounting in terms of the timing, in terms of the seasons and the weather patterns of those seasons, uh, things like water currents and what all of that would mean should an ancient sailing vessel set out at the time when Paul's did and in the place where it did, and should it encounter the kinds of conditions that it did, all of the scholars agree that what Luke records is exactly what you would expect to happen and exactly where a ship would expect to end up should it encounter a storm like the one that Luke describes here in Acts chapter 27. By far, the scholar who has done the most to study and authenticate Luke's accuracy in in this chapter in Acts 27 is the Scottish writer named James Smith. James Smith wrote this little book in 1848. It's called The Voyage and the Shipwreck of St. Paul. And it was republished again in 2001 by Whitfinstock. And you can can actually buy this on Amazon. And I actually, I'd encourage you to do that and get yourself a copy, especially if you're a nerd like me who likes to fill in all of the all of the very minute and and sometimes mundane historical details of the things that we're reading together and studying in Scripture. This is a really fascinating read. It includes some very precisely detailed navigational data and geographical detail. Um, he, He has appendices with ancient nautical commentary. He includes maps of all of the areas that are mentioned here. And and he's comparing all of this to the text here in order to verify that what Luke records in Acts chapter 27 happened exactly as Luke records it to have happened. James Smith was a soldier. He became a sailor, and and after his tenure in the military, a professional yachtsman, he spent more than 30 years traveling the seas, much of it in the Mediterranean region here. He was an amateur geologist in geography. He lived in the regions of Gibraltar and Lisbon and, and Malta. Malta is where the shipwreck of Paul actually happened. Uh, He was an expert, Smith was, in the weathered patterns of the Mediterranean world and in navigation and in seamanship, both in terms of how they used to do it in ancient times and how they do it in more modern times in that part of the world. And so, see, all of 
James Smith's interests and expertise made him a perfect person to study and to investigate this voyage of Paul's that, that Luke records for us here at, towards the end of the book of Acts. And Smith's conclusion was that this chapter, chapter 27, was the product of someone who was an eyewitness to the events, but at the same time, someone who was not a professional sailor. In other words, someone exactly like the Apostle Luke's. Here's what Smith says in the introduction to his book. He says, No sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. And no man who was not a sailor could have written a narrative of a sea voyager so consistent with all of its parts unless it was from actual first-hand observation. In other words, it's written by someone who's not a professional sailor, but someone who was actually there. He says the same thing about the geographical details that we read about in this chapter. He says, these all must have been taken from actual observation because the geographical knowledge and the cartography, the, the map making of the day, was not such as to enable a writer to be so minutely accurate in any other way. They didn't have maps detailed enough so that if if Paul, or if Luke rather, heard in retrospect this story of how the voyage went for Paul, that he could go back and look at maps and put the pieces together and supply the details that way. He had to have been there on the boat. And of course, that's what he says he was, right? Look at verse 1 here of Acts 27. Luke uses the plural pronoun we right there in verse 1, doesn't he? When it was concluded that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. We means that Luke got to go with Paul on the boat. And they probably allowed that. They probably allowed Luke and also Aristarchus, as verse 2 say, says, to accompany Paul. They probably let these friends and brothers of Paul accompany him along the way of his journey to Rome as, as servants of Paul's and out of deference to Paul. Because, again, they knew Paul wasn't actually guilty of any crimes. And so they've allowed him this privilege of having travel companions to go along with him and tend to him during this long journey to Italy. I've given you a, a map there in your bulletins. You'll see it's an insert there so that you can follow along uh, the basic path of this, this journey of Paul's and Luke's and Aristarchus as they, as they traveled all the way to Malta together. And as we go about studying this journey here together, you can look down at that map and, and follow along yourself. You can see down in the far right-hand corner of the map how Paul had gone from Jerusalem up to Caesarea. You remember that first part of his journey of imprisonment. And now, two years after he's been in Caesarea, he's sailing for Italy because he's appealed to Caesar. And remember, Festus and Agrippa have said, because he appealed to Caesar, he's going to go to Caesar. Otherwise, he should be let go free. The only reason he's sailing for Italy is because he's appealed to Caesar. And then if you look all the way over on the left-hand side of your map, you'll see the island of Malta, little tiny island just to the south of Sicily. That's where the shipwreck happened on the island of Malta, as we'll learn from the first verse in chapter 28, and we're going to end there today. We're going to end in chapter 28 and verse 10, and then pick it up next week with verse 11 of chapter 28, where Paul gets on another ship and ends up in Rome. And we'll finish out the chapter there and the book of Acts there together next week. But here in chapter 27, Luke says in verse 2, they embarked from Caesarea in a ship of Adramatium. That just means that the ship's home port was not Caesarea. It was a, a city called Adramatium, which was out off the coast of Troas, up to the north near Asos in the Aegean Sea. And it's, it's left from there and come to port here in Caesarea before setting off out west towards Asia Minor and eventually to Italy. So after embarking and setting sail... Their first port was in Sidon, verse 3 says. You can see it there on the map up north of Caesarea. It's on the, the same coastline there in Syria. Luke says that Julius, 
the Roman centurion that had been assigned to transport Paul and the other prisoners all the way to Rome. Julius treated Paul kindly and, and let him go. Let him go once the boat came into Sidon and leave the boat and visit friends in Sidon so that they could care for him. Christian brothers and sisters, friends of his, who he could fellowship with and spend some time with and they could, they could care for him. And so that, that's an extraordinary kindness, see, because, because even though Julius knew that Paul was an innocent man and that ultimately Paul should be a free man, Julius has been charged with transporting Paul all the way to Rome. And if he shows up in Rome without Paul, he'll be held accountable. And in the Roman world, that's, that's not going to be a good thing for Julius at all. If he shows up without a prisoner, it, it, it's at least going to mean his job. It's very likely going to mean his freedom, and it may very well mean his life. And so this really is an extraordinary kindness that Julius is granting to Paul, which again shows us, first of all, as we study this story of Paul in the storm, it shows us God's incredible kindness and providence in Paul's life, which reminds us once again to keep our eyes open while we're in the storms of our lives, during the stormy trials that our God faithfully ordains for us to endure. And, and we need to keep our eyes open during those times for the times when the sun breaks through the clouds and God causes the lines to cross for us in pleasant places. We all go through these times, don't we? These trials where the little, the little boat of our lives that we're in is getting battered by the wind and the rain and tossed around by the waves and the seas and we feel like all hope has been lost and we're wondering and we're despairing. And then in the midst of the storm, there are, there are times when God causes the clouds to part and the sun to poke through. And the reality is that it's not all bad. Our attention tends to get focused on the bad during the times that are hard, but it's not all bad. It is all good, in fact, in God's sovereign purposes and in his good, sovereign, fatherly, kind purposes he often supplies those times for us when the lines cross in pleasant places. And so Paul was allowed some freedom here, but after a time of fellowship, when he knew the ship was going to leave, he came back of his own accord. He didn't just run off and seek his own freedom. He came back from the hospitality and the fellowship that he got to enjoy there inside and, and got back on the ship. And verse 4 says, they put out to sea, under, it says, the lee of Cyprus. That's one of those nautical terms and details that Luke includes. To be under the lee means to be under the shelter of the island of Cyprus, and where you are in the lee depends on where the winds are coming from. So Luke explains in verse 4 that the winds were against them, and sailors and, and historians and scholars like James Smith explain that at that time of year, the winds blow down from the northwest to the northeast, which would have been precisely contrary to the ship's sailing direction from Sidon up to the northwest towards Asia Minor. So the bottom line is they couldn't sail that way. And so instead of heading straight into those winds, which, which would have driven them south of Cyprus and slowed their journey way, way down and impeded them. They sailed up to the north and tucked into the lee of Cyprus. They, they allowed the island to, to serve as a block to those winds, which meant they were sailing in between Cyprus and the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. And so that was bringing them, you can see the line there on your maps, westward along that coastline and into port, verse 5 says, at Mira. There they changed ships, verse 6 says, and they got on a boat that had come from Alexandria and was headed all the way out to Italy. This would have been a much larger ship, uh, much more capable of sailing way out in the open seas to the west. If you look all the way down in verse 38, Luke, Luke's going to supply this detail for us that 
this ship that they're on out of Alexandria was a ship that was full of wheat. It was full of grain. And, and down in verse 38, after enduring the storm for a long time, they end up eating a good portion of that grain, but then they had to dump the rest of it overboard in order to lighten the ship from the storm. Alexandria, where the ship came from, was, was down in Egypt, and it was the largest producer and source of grain in the Roman Empire. So this ship was on its way back to the city of Rome with a full load of food for the capital city of the empire. And it's on that ship that Julius brings Luke and Aristarchus and the Apostle Paul and the rest of the prisoners on board in order to bring them to Rome. He says it's been about, well, other sources actually tell us it's been about two weeks now since the journey from Caesarea began. Uh, from Myra, they, they sailed slowly, Luke tells us, again, because of the opposing winds, until they got to a place called Canidus, which was on the southwestern tip of Asia Minor. Uh, again, James Smith tells us that at this time of year, uh, when Paul's voyage took place, which would have been at the end of summer, sort of the beginning of fall, kind of actually the, the same exact time of year that we're in here uh, as we're studying this passage, at that time of year and in that place in the Mediterranean, toward the end of summer, toward the beginning of fall, this is exactly the kinds of winds and their direction that seafarers would always and ordinarily face. And these were the exact routes, therefore, that seafarers and shipping uh, lanes had to typically take in order to get across the Mediterranean. From Canidus, those, those winds prevented them from heading due west all the way across the Aegean Sea, and so they had to dip down to the south, tuck under the lee, you see it there, under the lee of Crete, to the south of Crete because the winds are blowing down and again they use it as a shelter as a block from those winds and then they put into port on the island of Crete there at Fair Havens verse 8 says on the southern coastline of Crete and Luke tells us that by this time the fast was already over see that in verse 8 there the fast was already over what he means is the day of atonement has already occurred. And, and we know that the year of this voyage is 59 AD, and so we know that the Day of the Atonement on, on, in the year 59 AD would have fallen on October 5th. And so, see, that's when they're sailing. That's when they come into fair havens. They're well into fall now. It's, it's, it's beginning to mid-October. Winter is fast approaching. Sea journeys had to stop in those days by the beginning of November, just a few weeks away from when they put into Fairhavens, because after the beginning of November, the seas just became too stormy and unsafe to travel. And so now in Fairhavens, on the southern coast of Crete, it becomes clear to everyone that they're not going to make it all the way to Italy before winter. So they're going to have to find a good place to stay through the winter so they can resume the voyage again the next spring. And the question is, do they do they, do they put into port and winter there in Fairhavens, or do they head further to find a better and more suitable, more substantial harbor to port in for the winter? Because you see, the port at Fairhavens had two strikes against it. It was small, so it didn't offer much protection to ships during winter storms, and it was also situated in a place where those storms would have exposed the ships to uh, the, the most the most impact by the winds and the waves. So the owner of the ship and the pilot of the ship, the captain, and, and Julius the centurion all agreed with one another and felt like it was much, much safer for the sake of the vessel itself to go further and to find a bigger, safer place to port and wait out the winter before continuing on to Italy and Rome. But look at what Paul says. In verses 10 and 11, he gives this very, very stern warning. He says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. If we press on, Paul says, I perceive that we're going to be in a lot of trouble. It's going to mean peril. It's going to mean injury. It's going to mean loss. And I'm not just talking about the boat and the cargo. I'm talking about our lives. Now, Paul isn't speaking prophetically there at, the, at this point. He hasn't heard yet directly from God about what lay ahead in this journey. What he's doing at this point is speaking from his own 
experience. And in fact, again, and again, this comes from uh, the investigations of scholars like James Smith and, and uh, the experience and the expertise and the conclusions that, that he's made reading this story. In fact, the reality is Paul had probably spent more time traveling these waters, these seas around the Mediterranean world than many professional sailors had. Paul had logged thousands of miles over almost two decades' time on his various missionary journeys during all times and all seasons of the year as he traveled all throughout the empire bringing the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. So see, just from the vantage point of Paul's own human experience and instincts, Paul could smell trouble in the winds out there and and may actually have known better than most or, or even anyone else on that ship that as small as the harbor at Fairhaven's was and as risky as it might be to stay there on the southern coast of Crete for the winter... Sailing at this time of year anymore was significantly more risky. But verse 12, the majority prevailed against Paul's urging, and they concluded that because the harbor there at Fairhavens was not suitable to spend the winter in, they would have to put out to sea again. On the chance, Luke says, notice, they all knew the risk on the chance that they might somehow reach Phoenix. Do you see Phoenix there on the map? Up to the northwest of Fairhaven, still on the island of Crete, not far to get. But remember, these ships aren't powered, right? They've got no engines, they've got no turbines, they've got no propellers. They're simply subject to the water currents and mostly to the winds. But they think maybe there's a chance we can make it up to Phoenix because the harbor there in Phoenix is not only much bigger, it's also better situated in terms of the way that it's facing than the one in Fairhavens. And Luke explains that there in verse 12. So in verse 13, they set out hoping on the chance that they might somehow reach Phoenix. And Luke says that at first things seem to be going pretty well. There's a gentle south wind. That means it's blowing up from the south. It's pushing the boat towards the coastline. It's pushing it exactly in the direction they want to go. So they're optimistic here. Their hopes are up that they might be able to make it to Phoenix. But that gentle south wind was a deceptive south wind. Historians tell us that at that time of year in that part of the Mediterranean, the south winds can and very often do give way suddenly to violent nor'easters that are known as the gregale or the violent storm. And that, that is exactly what happened. Verse 14, soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land, from the mountains of Crete up to their northeast, A ferocious gale of wind blew down towards the water, slammed into the ship, and drove them away from the coastline. The word tempestuous there is the Greek word typhonikos, literally a a typhoon, hurricane force winds, and the ship, verse 15, was caught immediately in that gale and they were at its mercy. They were being driven by it away from the shoreline. They managed through some good navigation and seamanship to to tuck under the lee of the little island of Cauda. See it there on the map? That offered a little bit of a shelter, a little bit of a buffer from the winds rushing down from Crete, but not for long. So they knew they had to get busy. They They had to do what they could. And so they were able to secure, it says, the ship's boat. That's a like a lifeboat that was towed behind the ship, a dinghy that was towed behind the ship. And they would use that when they would put into port, you know, way offshore a little bit, hundreds of yards offshore. And then the men would, would ride that boat into shore and, and use it to, to ferry people and cargo back and forth to the ship. So they managed to haul this lifeboat, this dinghy, in by the ropes. Again, look, look, Luke, notice, notice that he uses the pronoun we there. We managed to haul 
this boat in. All hands were on deck, including Luke's, including Paul's, and they all hoisted this dinghy up out of the water and onto the deck of the ship where they secured it from the storm. And then verse 16 says they used supports to undergird the ship. And that means either passing cables underneath the hull to the other side, which you can't imagine the difficulty of, but they knew how to do that in order to to strap the timbers and hold the boat together, or maybe they lashed the stern and the bow together above the deck so that the so that the boat wouldn't twist so much. These were wooden boats, of course, and and in storms and in waves, too much twisting would break the back of that boat, and they were trying to give it all the help that it could to keep it from being broken by the wind and the waves. Verse 17 says that fearing they'd run aground on the sandbars around Sirtis, they lowered the gear. That either means they dropped the mainsail or they lowered what's called a sea anchor, which is like a a water sail, a a big broad anchor that would go down into the water and, and cause drag in order to provide some some drag to slow the boat down as they drifted on in this storm. Then verse 18, they had to jettison some of the cargo in desperation. Verse 19, things are getting worse and worse now. They have to dump the ship's tackle, all of the necessary gear and equipment that they had to have on board in order to make a journey like this and operate the ship. And then after many days of enduring this intense storm, Verse 20 says that with neither sun nor stars to guide them, and remember, of course, they had no GPS, they had no radar, they had no radios, they had no modern means of navigation. If you couldn't see the sky, you had no clue where you were. And so Luke says there at the end of verse 20 that all hope of being saved was at last abandoned by the sailors, by the ship's crew, by the captain, by the the pilot and the owner of the ship and the centurion Julius, all of them just gave up all hope. We've done everything we can do. We've done everything we can think to do. There's nothing more to be done. And they've all concluded that they're now just such at the mercy of this storm that it's going to be impossible to save their ship. This is it, they believe. They're going to go down. They're going to die at sea. They're going to drown right then and there. And in the middle of that hopelessness, in the middle of that crisis, in the middle of that despair, in steps the Apostle Paul. We've heard him in Acts be the Apostle Paul. We've heard him be the great preacher to Jews and Gentiles. We've heard him as the prisoner defending himself and Christ and the resurrection and the gospel. Here he is, Paul the prisoner, in as much peril as everybody else on that boat. And now he's the counselor, offering great wisdom and encouragement and hope to everybody who's panicking and hopeless in the middle of this storm. And here we see Paul not just speaking out of his years and seasoned experience as a a sea traveler himself. Here it's Paul's character as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus. It's the faith that has been forged over years and years and years of hard, brutal, seemingly hopeless trials, but depending on the Lord Jesus Christ and the promises of God and the living word of our God and the sustaining hand and strength that is only made perfect in our weakness. It's that faith and that character forged over long years that now drives Paul to speak and enables him to do something in this paralyzing panic and gives him the strength to encourage these men, to give courage to them. Look what he says in verse 21. Paul stands up. The wind's still howling. The waves are still churning. And Paul says, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now he's not saying, "Uh I told you so in some kind of petty way. He's not trying to score points against them here. There's no pride driving Paul here. He's not trying to lay blame on them for the big mess that they're all in here. What Paul's simply saying is, listen, everybody, it just so happens that I was right 
before that we shouldn't have left Crete. And now that we're in a big giant mess and you've run out of ideas and options and things that you can do, it'd probably be good if you listened to me this time. I think his true heart and intentions and, and attitude come through loud and clear in verse 22. He says, I urge you now to take heart. That's what Paul really wants. That's his heart, not to say I proved you wrong, not to say I was right all along, but to say, I want you to take heart. He's not trying to tear him down. He's trying to build him up in the midst of the crisis. That's what godly people do. That's what faithful people do. So he says, take heart. That's the Greek word euthymeo. And you know what it means? Euthymeo? It means, it means cheer up. <laughs> Picture that in the middle of this storm on the, on the deck of this ship or in its hold, wherever they are. Cheer up, guys. Keep your chin up. Be of, be of good courage. He says it twice. Once here in verse 22, then down in verse 25 again. Take heart. Cheer up in the midst of the storm, staring in the face of certain disaster and death. Now, how can Paul say that? What, what, what ground is Paul standing on? in the middle of this terrible storm that enables him to say to everyone who's freaking out and panicking on that ship, guys, cheer up. Take heart. Don't be so discouraged. Well, he tells them very specifically there in verse 23. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul says, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will, it will be exactly as I have been told. But first we must run aground on some island. Do you see Paul's unyielding confidence? in the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God. And haven't we already seen it over and over again in the book of Acts, right? In the record of how Paul faces adversity in his life time and time again. So here it is again, and here's the principle that God is revealing to us in his word through Paul in this episode. Here's the lesson that stands out so profoundly again. It's this. And you can apply this and employ this every time you're in a storm of your own. The lesson is this. The Apostle Paul flat out refuses to let his trials dictate his theology. He refuses to let his trials dictate his theology. And listen to me. Isn't that what we do? all the time. Let me be the first one to admit it's what I tend to do all the time. It's so easy in our flesh as someone who believes in God. It's so easy to let the circumstances of our lives and our fleshly feelings about those circumstances to dictate in the hardest moments of our lives to dictate what we think about God and about his goodness, and about his faithfulness, and about his love for us, right? If God really loved me, if God really cared about me, then I wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. He wouldn't let this be happening to me at all. Isn't that what really, truly lies behind all of the fleshly responses to trials and adversity and desperate circumstances that, that, that tend to come out of us in our flesh, right? All the frustration, the anxiety, the anger, the self-pity, the discontentment, the panic, and then all of the sin that flows in attitudes and words and actions out of all of that. Isn't all of that growing out of the soil of a doubt, of God's goodness and love towards us in the trials. It is. It is. 
And Paul here refuses to do that. He refuses to let the circumstances dictate his conclusions about God's character and nature. God, who ordained that Paul was going to go to Rome, he could very easily have ordained that that Paul would get there by way of a very smooth journey, right? He could have ordained for Paul to be sent to Italy at a different time of year when the winds and the waves were calm and not prone to storms. Or he could have superintended the normal course of, of the climate and the weather so that this storm didn't kick up, right? But instead, God sovereignly ordained that Paul, in going to Rome, was only going to get there on the seas of struggle. And so Paul knowing and trusting the sovereign goodness of his God, instead of letting the struggle determine his perspective on God's goodness, faithfulness, and love, Paul interprets the struggle through the lens of those concrete realities. Paul says to himself, God is sovereign. God is faithful. God is good. God does love me no matter what. The circumstances don't change that because nothing can change God. And so instead of trying to interpret God through the struggle, I will interpret the struggle through the infallible, immutable, character and nature of my God and come to the conclusion that there must be purpose in this pain. And that's what we need to take from this. Jerry Bridges very famously used to say that God never wastes pain. He's always good and faithful in pain to use it for his glory, which is the ultimate good, and also for our benefit never, ever ultimately for our harm. And so where it can be very easy for us when we find ourselves in the middle of hard circumstances from those which are very, very, very hard, like this kind of one that Paul's in, and and then if I'm going to be honest, there's also those that are um, comparatively really actually not hard, but I still respond to them poorly. Like if I get stuck in traffic or my, my, my computer locks up and I just want to start jamming those keys on the keyboard into powder in order to make it do what I want it to do, right? You ever been there? It can be very easy for us in all kinds of moments, in all kinds of seasons, to just jettison, to throw overboard our hope in God's will and our confidence in God's goodness and faithfulness and love to toss it out because we think that that unburdening ourselves from those beliefs is going to be what gets us through the storm as we take the wheel and, and start hoisting the sails in our own strength. But Paul, Paul doesn't do any of that. Paul's faith doesn't budge even when this shipwreck looks to be absolutely certain and all hope has been absolutely lost by everyone around him. And it's that faith rooted and grounded in the truth of God that that God reveals to us in his word that enabled Paul to remain faithful himself and that then empowered Paul to encourage other people on the ship. Now, I know what you're thinking. I do. Because when I read this, this story, the thought occurs to me also. You're thinking, well, of course Paul didn't get too rattled here. Of course he didn't panic or freak out here. God sent an angel to him to tell him how it was all going to turn out, right? That'd be nice, right? We're, that's what we need, right? We're in the middle of a, a trial. We're in the middle of a hard circumstance. All hope seems to be lost. We can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. God, why don't you send me an angel and just let me know how it's all going to work out and what good purposes you have and are going to accomplish in precise detail so that I don't have to worry so much, right? Paul already had the word of Christ from earlier that he would testify in Rome. 
Now this angel has come in the midst of this storm to confirm that he's going to stand before Caesar. He's not going to die. And the angel has also filled in some pretty important details that God's providence in fulfilling this, this purpose for Paul to get safely to Rome is going to spill over onto everyone else on the ship. That's a big deal, right? Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you, the angel told Paul. As it goes for Paul, so will it go for all of them on the ship in God's goodness. None of them are going to die, even though the ship is going to run aground on an island. That would be, that would be great, right? If, if this was the normative, ordinary way in which God worked. If every time circumstances were hard, every time disaster struck, if God who ordained it all and knows the outcome of it all would just let us know, right? Send the angel this way, God. Just let me know exactly what's going to happen, exactly what purposes are going to come for my benefit from this terrible storm that I find myself in the middle of. But God, God doesn't work that way, does he? Because we walk by faith, not by sight, don't we? And the faith by which we walk is the assurance of things that are unseen. If you can see it, you don't need faith to trust it and believe it. If you already know what's going to happen, you don't need to trust God. In John chapter 20, Jesus, who'd been nailed to a cross and and killed and buried in a tomb, appeared, risen to some of his disciples. And they went and they told Thomas. Thomas hadn't been there to see it for himself, but they went and they said, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas doubted. I don't believe you guys. And until I see the marks of the nails in his hands that I can put my own fingers into, until I see the wound on his side where the soldiers pierced him, and I'm able to put my hand into that wound, unless I see, I will never believe, Thomas said. Eight days later, Jesus appeared among them all in a room, even though the door was locked, but Jesus got in anyhow, and he said to Thomas, here I am. Put your fingers in the wounds in my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Believe, Thomas. Don't disbelieve. And Thomas believed, right? My Lord and my God, it's you. And Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? How blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so ask ourselves this, right, Christians, brothers and sisters, we ask ourselves this. Am I only able to trust my God if he tells me the outcome first? And am I only going to be able to trust him if having told me the outcome and having been made known the outcome that outcome corresponds with my will, with what I'm okay with. Is that really trust? Listen, so often our God is good enough to not let us know how any given situation is going to turn out. To not let us know because it's in those times when we don't know It's in those times where the only thing we have left is to trust him who does know. When we don't know when when it's going to be over and what's going to happen exactly, how exactly it's going to turn out, whether we're going to get it the way we hoped for or prayed for or not, when the only things that we can know are that no matter what happens, our God is unchangeably sovereign and faithful and loving and good because his word says so, when that's all we can know. That's when God is working in us to forge a deep and deepening faith in his word and in him who reveals himself in his word so that more and more 
our theology, our, our knowledge, our confidence of who God is doesn't depend on our circumstances. It just depends on Him who is what He is and who reveals to us all that we need in His inerrant, all-sufficient Word, which doesn't tell us the answers about every question we have about the outcome of our lives, but it does tell us about His infallible, immutable, unchangeable goodness and faithfulness and power and love. So He's probably not going to send you an angel but he definitely has given you his word. And his word tells you that he's faithful and good and loving in all his ways and that he has ordered everything according to his good purposes. And that no matter what afflictions and sufferings you got to go through in this world, they are what? 2 Corinthians 4. They are momentary, light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that is promised and sealed and guaranteed to everyone who puts their whole hope in Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, the Apostle Paul would be the first one to tell us that he would much rather hang his ultimate hopes on the inerrant word of God than on the prophetic utterances of angels. Because as good as that is, as nice it is, is as it is to know how any given circumstance is going to work out if an angel came and, and told him that Paul's trust and confidence in God and his goodness doesn't depend on that. It depends on God who is and who ordains trials of many kinds in our lives for our good and for his glory. So we see here First of all, how Paul, in the midst of this storm, is absolutely anchored to the Word of God, the truth of God, so much so that he refuses to let his trials dictate his theology, refuses to let his circumstances determine his conclusions about who God is and whether or not God is good or loving or faithful. And the second thing that I want us to glean from this story here, this this fantastic tale here, is how Paul, even though he did know the outcome of his particular trial with certainty because God told him through the angel, Paul, even though he knew, knowing he's not going to die, knowing that neither is anybody else on the ship going to die, he doesn't just put his hands behind his head and, and sit back and do nothing in the midst of the storm, right? Well, I guess I don't need to worry about anything then. I guess I can just let go and let God then. Now, Paul does plenty, doesn't he? Paul exercises great human responsibility in the midst of an assurance, a prophetic assurance of God's absolute sovereignty. Because Paul absolutely knows nothing of these conflicts that we like to imagine in our minds exist between God's sovereignty over the outcomes and our responsibility in the midst of the storms. Don't we like to think about that kind of thing all the time? Well, if God's sovereign over everything, then, then doesn't that just mean we're robots or puppets? And Paul just says, stop it. No, no, no. Don't even ask that. That's just, that's just silliness and unbiblical foolishness. Well, if God already knows what I'm going through and has ordained how it all works out, then, then why do I need to bother praying? If God's the one who sovereignly saves sinners by raising them from spiritual death to life, then, then why do we need to bother with evangelism? And Paul says, stop it. These aren't questions worthy of those who faithfully trust and follow and love and obey and serve the sovereign God. Paul never asks questions like that. Paul knows that God is sovereign over everything, over the storm, over the outcome. Paul knows none of them are going to die in this storm because God said so, and Paul said there's plenty for us to do in this storm. Plenty of wisdom to exercise, plenty of decisions to make, plenty of important work to get done. And so knowing the the outcome that has been sovereignly and unchangeably ordained by God, Paul, in verses 21 to 26 calls these people to keep up their courage, right? 
He motivates them. He's encouraging them. Don't be discouraged or we'll all be lost. Then verses 27 through 32, he tells them they all need to stay together. Look at it. They're two weeks into this storm, no navigation. They're being blown around by this typhoon. The sailors start to suspect that they're near land because probably they can hear water crashing on rocks out there in the darkness, which means pretty soon they're going to hit those rocks. So they took soundings. They confirmed the water's getting shallower as they go. And so they let down more anchors, hoping to keep the ship from hitting the rocks. Verse 30 says, they secretly lowered the dinghy back down into the water. The sailors did because they wanted to escape. Let the ship run ashore and, and we'll escape with our lives while everybody else dies. But, but Paul was able to discern what they were up to and said, hey, Unless everybody stays on the ship, none of us can be saved. Well, wait a minute here. God has told Paul no one's going to die. And here Paul says if anyone leaves, everyone will die. So does that mean that God's sovereign purposes depend on what we do? Can we change the outcome of God's eternal decrees? Paul says, stop it. No, of course not. I mean, what blasphemy it would be to say that the finite can sway the infinite, that the will of man can undo the will of God. There's no hint of any such thinking in the mind of Paul. There's no inkling anywhere in God's word that his purposes depend in any way, shape, or form on what we do or don't do. Paul just knows that God is sovereign. He will always work out his purposes and that he will often do it through the things that he already knows we're going to do. And that even though he already knows and has foreordained for us to do them, that doesn't mean that we're not responsible for doing them or culpable for what we do or don't do. And so Paul just knows God's sovereign and I'm responsible to be busy about trusting God, obeying God, employing good wisdom, making good choices, doing good things as God works out his purposes, sometimes through me, sometimes in spite of me. So see, Paul's just absolutely unconcerned. With any, with any so-called dilemma between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Both are true, full stop, period. And so Paul, trusting God, do, does, does what he knows needs to be done. He encourages the men. He exhorts the men to stay together. In verses 33 through 38, he, he urges them to eat food. They haven't eaten in 14 days. They've been so busy trying to keep the ship from breaking apart. And Paul says, eat. It's going to give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. So eat. There's 276 people on this boat, verse 37 says. And none of them are going to perish in God's perfect, sovereign, immutable plan. And so, hey, why bother eating, right? No, that's not how. Of course you want to eat. And here Paul says you better all eat in order to keep up your strength because you should be encouraged that you're not going to die, so go ahead and eat. Do you get it? Even though God's purposes never depend on human actions, there is no conflict between the promise of God that none of them would die and the importance of them eating food and keeping up their strength. No one, not a single one of those almost 300 people on the boat is saying, well, if it's not possible for us to die, then why should we bother eating, right? Least of all, Paul. There's no conflict in his mind. He just knows God's promise. And he also knows that God calls us to use good wisdom and to do good things here in this world. And so Paul's unflagging trust in God's perfect goodness and promises, that doesn't stop him from staying busy in making sure that the ship didn't take on unnecessary risks with the onset of winter, in making sure that the, that the sailors didn't escape in the dinghy and, and expose everybody else to, to danger, or in making sure that the starving crew and passengers all ate and kept up their strength so that they could survive. Bottom line, Men of great faith in the God who is sovereign and good are men of great action in service to him. Not complacency. Action. 
through which God sovereignly works out his purposes, and sometimes in spite of which, if we are complacent in being faithful, God works to work out his purposes. For us, though, be active about being wise and faithful to your God. So Paul was both full of the Spirit and full of full of faith and common sense, right? And that's how his faith in God and God's sovereignty and goodness and faithfulness and love were worked out in everyday life, and so it must be with us. Paul, Paul refused to let trials dictate theology, and Paul insisted that his faith in God work itself out in the production of the fruit of faithfulness in his life. So, verse 39, the sun came up. They all saw land, but they didn't recognize it. They didn't know where they were. There was a bay with a beach. It's called St. Paul's Bay now on the northeast coast of the little island of Malta, south of Sicily. You can go visit there. Verse 40 says, they cast off the anchors. They left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground just as God had prophesied through the angel would happen. The bow struck, remained immovable. The stern was being broken up by the surf. The boat is disintegrating now. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So it was by the sovereign hand of God. So it was because of the faithfulness of Paul. So it was in spite of the unfaithfulness of some of the sailors. So it was according to the course of that storm and the wind and the waves that broke up the boat and gave them things to float on in fulfillment of God's eternal purposes. So it was that it all ended up exactly as the angel had told Paul that it would, and they were all brought safely to land, everyone alive, with the ship run aground on an island. They learned that this island they were now stranded on was in fact the island of Malta. Verse 1 of chapter 28 says, the native people... Uh, the word in Greek is the word we get our, our word barbarians from, but, but they were not barbarous. They showed unusual kindness. They kindled a fire. They welcomed them. Paul, again, in spite of the fact that the fire's already been kindled and God's sovereign and done everything he said, goes and gets busy. He gathers a bunch of wood for the fire. There's a snake, a venomous snake, among the sticks that Paul gathered, and when he set them down by the fire, that snake slithered out and bit him on the hand. It's literally hanging off his hand. And the superstitious natives assume that because that's happened, Paul must be a murderer, and, and the justice has finally caught up with him. The Greek word for murderer is decay, which does mean justice. It's also, however, the name of a pagan goddess who was the goddess of justice, and so the natives probably assumed both things have happened. Paul's a murderer, and, and the goddess knew that and caused this snake to come out and enact justice on Paul once he got to land. But the true God proved him wrong, right? Because Paul, he's totally, I love how he's unfazed by being bit by this viper because he knows he's not going to die, right? I'm going to get all the way to Rome. This snake's not going to stop me. So he shakes it off into the fire, and then nothing happens to him. He doesn't get weak, he doesn't fall over, he doesn't get sick, he doesn't die like they're expecting. And, and Luke remarks on how quickly these natives go from assuming that Paul must be a murderer to concluding after he doesn't die that he must be a god. <laughs> Idolatry is pretty fickle, right? But there in Malta, and we've got to end the story here in verses 7 through 10. Look how God works out his purposes and brings good through this stormy, catastrophic trial. 
The one true God manifests His power, His glory, His goodness, His grace. The chief of the islands, a man named Publius, he shows kindness to Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. And so through Paul, God, God showed kindness to Publius. Paul healed Publius' father and the whole island heard about it and brought everyone on the island who had a disease or a sickness and all of them were healed. And more than that, history and tradition tell us that the church in Malta was established by Publius who became its first elder. And after he came to faith in Jesus, after Paul healed his father, during the persecutions, Publius would end up being transferred to Athens 30 years later and then martyred for his faith in Jesus in 125 AD. But there has always been a Christian presence and a voice affirming the goodness and the glory of Christ in Malta ever since because our God is awesome and powerful and sovereign over every storm and every hard trial and affliction of our lives. And he is good and faithful to his word and promises. And he is gracious and loving. And as we continue to trust him in all the storms and faithfully serve him no matter what the circumstances, he will continue to work out his purposes to preserve us to strengthen us, to grow us, and to cause the aroma of Christ to emanate from us as we walk by faith in this world. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Amen. Let's pray to our God today for this strength and wisdom and then let us sing his praises. Our Father and our God, how thankful we are for your word and its inerrant, infallible testimony of your goodness and faithfulness even in the storms of our lives. May we learn to trust you. May our faith never be shaken but in fact be strengthened by every trial you ordain and may you glorify yourself in them and through them because of us and in spite of us and may you build your church. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.